Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, back from a very suspicious trip to the salvage yard, it's Daniel Hanley. <laughs> Hello. That was a really good one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I figure, I'm not sure we'll get to our friend uh, who runs the very sus salvage yard in this episode, so I wanted to make sure he got a shout here at the beginning. Oh, very sus. Very sus. But yeah, back from that salvage yard, and I'm ready to talk about season one, episode 10 of The Americans. Titled Only You, which is directed by Adam Arkin and written by Bradford Winters. And if I remember correctly, Adam Arkin is, we'll do several key episodes of The Americans as we make our way forward. But Danielle, before we get into the discussion too much, would you like to read us the IMDb summary? Yeah, so the IMDb summary for this episode is, After Amador's murder, the FBI begins a massive manhunt for the killer. When they start closing in on Gregory, the KGB decides to send him to Moscow. Despite Elizabeth's best efforts, he refuses to go, even if it means his life. So, Danielle, I mean, the the description is spot on. We're in a rare feat for IMDb. And so after we get Amador's death and Vlad's death in the previous episode, how did you react to Gregory's death here? Yeah, I mean, I think that... On the one hand, Gregory's death is is so sad because he does bring out this, like, really caring and emotional side of Elizabeth that we don't get to see that much. And it's clear that, like, he's committed to the cause and he's kind of this key player and they keep going back to him. But on the other hand, I do think that this is perhaps a path to some greater clarity. And I, I think what I mean by that is there's a certain amount of murkiness that's always, like circulating within the relationship between Philip and Elizabeth because of Gregory, right? Because of Gregory's presence, we sort of see it a little bit in, in, in the episode entitled Gregory earlier on in the season. We see it when Philip and Elizabeth, like sort of in an earlier episode part ways and Philip goes as Clark to Martha and Elizabeth goes to Gregory. Like there's this sort of like emotional pull that he has. And so I do think there is part of me that while I'm sad because also like phenomenal actor doing a phenomenal job, I think like maybe this is going to bring a little bit more clarity to the stakes of Philip and Elizabeth's relationship without the sort of like third party lingering. Right. Because there is this emotional entanglement, this intimacy between Elizabeth and Gregory that is not there, at least not there at the moment, between Philip and any of the people that he has relationships with or has sex with or has love for or something is feigning love for, whatever terminology we want to use, (laughs) for any of the characters, most of all Martha, that we see him interacting with, right? So there's that. I mean, I, I love the way that they depict... Elizabeth and Gregory's intimacy throughout this first season, but particularly in this episode, um, there's this moment when like Gregory is stroking Elizabeth's hair while they're sitting at the bar. That is just like a heartbreaking moment. um, Knowing what is coming 20 minutes later in the episode or whatever it is. And it's not the first time that they've had that particular level of physical intimacy through touch that is not necessarily sexual. They definitely have sexual chemistry, but it's it's like a pure expression of love and care for one another. Yeah. And I think like, again, it's telling that Gregory's who Elizabeth goes to after she and Philip have this sort of this falling out, this fight like earlier on. And yeah, the, the, the intimacy between them is 
it's telling us so much without giving us, without like being over the top, right? It's telling us so much about the like depth and length of their relationship, that yeah. their connection is like this pure connection. And then we, we see that like come to fruition in a way later on in the episode when, you know, Elizabeth is, she pulls the gun on him, but is like, can't fire it. And Claudia knew she wasn't going to be able to fire it. Phillip's in the hallway, like ready to come in. But I think like Elizabeth is trying so hard to convince him to go to Moscow, to convince him not to walk out on the street, like to convince him not to take this into his own hands. Um, And is sort of on the border of risking the mission like, and themselves and Philip yeah. and kids and like, Claudia. And- for, like, for this man, and I think you're absolutely right to, like, pinpoint that intensity in, like, a hair stroke or even just, like, the body language that they have when Elizabeth is sitting on the floor later on mm-hmm. when they're in the safe house and Gregory is on the couch. Like, yeah. there's something so familiar and, like, uh, warm about all of it. Mm-hmm. And and Elizabeth is not only trying to convince Gregory, she's also trying to convince herself yeah. that Gregory would be happy, would flourish in Moscow. And on some level, like what she says is probably true that she would be that he would be viewed as a hero by the KGB, right? As she points out to Philip or to Claudia or to both of them, that I forget that. Gregory did more than they would ever do because he legitimately chose this cause, his understanding of the revolution over his home country in a way that with all of the risks and kind of all of the danger and all of the, you know, fraught, fucked up personal and emotional dynamics or psychodynamics of what Philip and Elizabeth are doing, you know, that they haven't had to make quite that decision and quite that choice. So that convincing that Elizabeth probably believes on some level and as I'm assuming trying to make true or speak into existence Mm -hmm. as she is trying to speak it into existence on Gregory's behalf is I think very telling as is the fact that Gregory doesn't believe it. He knows that on some level, you know, because of that intimacy between them, that Elizabeth is also convincing herself and maybe doing that more than she is convincing him. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think also that it's, we get an interesting dynamic between Philip and Elizabeth as a result yeah. of the, and Philip, Elizabeth and Claudia, like through the the conflict around Gregory, because it's, we see Philip sort of pretty brazenly be like, Absolutely not. He, like you're lying to yourself, right? When they're in the car, it's when it's uh, Philip, Elizabeth, and Claudia. Mm-hmm. Claudia's asking, "Do you think he'll he'll go quietly?" And Philip and Elizabeth's like, "Yeah, you know, we gotta like make him see that it's important, but he'll go." And Philip's like, "You're crazy. Like, absolutely not." There, those roles are are reversed, right? Where we usually have Philip equivocating and Elizabeth sort of being the hard line, yeah. and here Philip is like, like. The emotions are, uh, in one sense, totally out of it for him, right? But in another sense, like, perhaps this is a place where he can um, start to re-articulate, like, his relationship with Elizabeth a little bit. Like, I'm interested to see if that's something that happens going forward. Yeah, and this brings us back to the point that you opened with, Danielle, in the way that, as we talked about before the show, that, before we started recording the show, I should say, that the way that Philip ultimately 
steps aside to let Gregory go out into the streets, you know, and he says, like, you know, shoot at the first cop with a gun or whatever, a man with a gun is a way to end his own life. Um, Philip is doing that for Elizabeth more than he is for Gregory, one would presume. And at the expense of what the technical mission is, and at the slight increased risk, it puts the two of them under. Yeah. Let him do that. So there's a way in which he is on some level trusting Gregory, but also trusting Elizabeth there at the end. Um, yeah. And, and and the two people that are left behind, right, are Philip and Elizabeth together alone, the two of them, after Gregory leaves. And I thought that it was interesting the way that that's sort of how Claudia puts it to Gregory as well. Where she's like, I get that, like, this is not what you want to do, but you need to think about the whole picture here. And you really need to think about Philip and Elizabeth. And, like, it's, I think, just what we've gotten of Claudia until now, the the dynamic between Claudia and Elizabeth, I think it, it makes sense to assume that, like, she has understood at least some of what the relationship between Elizabeth and Gregory is, right? Right. Right. And, and not just on the basis of like the reports that she would have read from however many right. years, all of the years they have records of dating back to it would have been the mid to late sixties when Elizabeth right. first recruits Gregory. Um, but also just the emotional dynamics that Claudia on some level does understand that's happening between Elizabeth and Gregory and observing Elizabeth up close and she became their handler. Yeah. And I think like, again, sort of an, an interesting entry into the catalog of Claudia, just because like we see her, right. Like she's the one who tells Elizabeth that Philip has like fucked his ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one that his like first love, right? Yeah. Like she's the one that uses that to manipulate manipulate Elizabeth out of that relationship. And so it's kind of interesting. The, the, like the Claudia of all this is not quite clear to me yet. Um, but it does seem quite straightforward. And I think perhaps that that speaks to just the, the stakes of, of, of where we're at right now. Right. Like that it's not about their, like petty differences or they're sort of more petty different pettier differences but instead it's about like we have start we have sort of started this hotter war with the FBI like what do we do now right and in in that sense there's a way in which the, in this episode both Gregory and Claudia pull out or extract or take to the logical conclusion one ex- one extreme version of the things that Philip and Elizabeth are contending with all of the all the time in this show whereas for Gregory it is what if we took Elizabeth's devotion to the cause compared in contrast with Philip or on its own terms to the fullest possible extent that's Gregory's insistence, A, that he would never, you know, rat them out, even if he was caught or tortured or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then B, his insistence on like, you know, on going and understanding that he is going to be killed in the process of, you know, of sh- shooting at a cop and then more cops are going to come. Um, and that shootout is his way of, of committing his own suicide. And so that's like one logical extreme of the cause of the devotion to the cause. And Claudia in this episode is like the extreme of the compartmentalization that Philip and Elizabeth are doing, where yeah. Claudia is able to both 
I think genuinely respects Gregory and like is very impressed with what Gregory has done. And also, as she says to Gregory directly, I'm I'm a guard dog, right? She says that she's going to protect Philip and Elizabeth above all else. So she is able to compartmentalize her appreciation or admiration or whatever for Gregory while still being willing to order his killing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like it is, to me, it's just fascinating to, to watch the layers of compartmentalization sort of like take shape and then unfold and then take shape again. Mm -hmm. And I, I think like that is one of my favorite things so far this season that we get to see like sometimes when Philip and Elizabeth literally put on costumes, right. When they perform other people, other roles, other identities, but sometimes it's just about the, like, it's like with Claudia, we don't see Claudia putting on a wig, although, the hair situation with Claudia is something at some point we should address. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Um, but we don't see her putting on on the same disguises, but we do get these different sort of like flashes of different aspects of her personality. And when she's like, just the, the part that you're touching on, when she's like... Um, you know, they keep, they like send me this old lady here because I'm good at my job. Right. Like, and yeah, she's a guard dog, but also like, she's a chameleon, right? We get to see all these different like aspects of her. Right. Which is a connection to Gregory in some ways. The fact that he is a black man and like is just assumed by white society or by the feds or whatever to be part of the background and also not capable of operating on the scale that they believe the KGB is operating at, right? That Gregory, and we saw this all the way back in the third episode Mm -hmm. when Gregory's team is actually surveilling the FBI, (laughs) right? That Gregory is not a chameleon in the way that Claudia is a chameleon, but both of them have some conscious, intentional operationalization Mm -hmm. of the ways that the FBI or the feds or like a white patriarchal society understands them and their place in that society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we did get another shot of Gregory with what, what looks like a joint in his mouth. Right. I was like, okay, we're back to this like aggressive, like stereotyping. I mean, and and this is also something that happened this episode, right? Gregory is the, I mean, with the exception of Curtis, who actually gets a name and a little bit of a story in this episode is kind of the only significant black character Right, and he is killed off in this episode. Yeah, and killed off in a way that I think has echoes of police violence in Choose Your Era of yeah. American history. But also has, you know, echoes of like how many Black Panthers died in shootouts Absolutely. with police, right? Which may or may not have been understood to be like quote unquote suicide by cop. That's a bad phrase, but like I'm going to use yeah. it. Because it's a common phrase, um, and that I wonder how intentional or not that that particular echo might be on behalf of the writers who I, you know, I don't 
believe any of the writers on the show, at least at this point, are themselves black people and black Americans in this country. So yeah, it's interesting that you bring up this point because I think for me, since the introduction of Gregory, I'm like, oh, he sort of looks like your stereotypical Black Panther. Like he's often in a beret. Like he, you know, like there is something like so. Again, like we're not in their brains. I don't know how intentional, but like there is certainly. There's the general sort of like stereotypical stuff with like, he's the black man. He offers Elizabeth weed in the earlier episode, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also like this playing on like these recurrent tropes in history, which is perhaps a deeper, on a deeper level, like. Right. If only at the level of part of the fabric of American law enforcement and what American law enforcement does is like kill people of color. So this is an obvious, even, even as a trope, it says something about what becomes a trope. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I'm also conscious of the fact that we discussed this back in like episode three or four, that it was in the SCLC that, Elizabeth and Gregory meet, not yeah. Snick, not the Panthers or something like that. So there's a way in which like, again, Gregory's function as a character and his blackness and his blackness in relation to like American politics or American institutions more broadly is somewhat different than the way he is introduced explicitly by the writers through Elizabeth. We could sort of easily assume that there's something, that there's intention behind the the muddling that's happening there. Yeah, yeah, I certainly think that's possible. And then there's just the fact that Gregory, his death comes on the heels of the deaths of Vlad and of Chris, and like the actual characters that are being killed and characters that we have various levels of commitment or emotional attachment to clearly Gregory the most uh, more so than Chris for sure, because Chris is like a cat or whatever, um, as everyone said, even though they loved him um, on certain, certain levels as well. There's just the kind of series of escalating violence against, if not main, then secondary characters in the show. Well, yeah. And, and like, I think it carries through with something that I was feeling in the last episode, which is like the Amador coming at Clark and being like FBI. And then, and then sort of like quickly after that Amador and Clark are in this like fight and Amador stabbed, right? Like really quick escalation of violence, sort of like, in a, in, for me, something that was like incredibly shocking, like we've seen houses blow up, right? We've seen Elizabeth shoot people, but there was something like out in the open and unplanned about, about the, like the showdown between Chris and Clark that then also carries over into the, like the Vlad being shot, Gregory dying, like yeah, it's like these secondary characters are getting killed, but also like if these secondary characters that we have some relationships to are not safe, like is anybody safe? Like, right? Like a, again, sort of a way to ratchet up the stakes by like allowing violence to permeate like what seem to be at least like relatively static relationships. Like, if you had told me at the beginning of the season when we met Amador that he was going to, like, 
be stabbed in a knife fight with Clark, I would have been like, you're nuts. Like, that's a crazy thing to say. Or this show, the show that would do that would be way less sophisticated than the Americans is on some level. Exactly. And yet, like, I am not only, like, feeling the loss of Gregory, feeling like even in his, like, brief screen time that we got some, like, we got a little of him. Yeah. And also feeling like, well... Gregory, like, walks out on this, like, attempt to get shot by cops, makes good on it. Like, what else? Like, what else is coming? Oh, I'm making great sense there, no, but it's, like, I mean, a lot. It, it, it does make sense, and it is a lot. And it also is indeed forewarning the audience of increasing escalation, although... Yeah over the next couple of episodes, although we're a little bit running out of characters at the level of Gregory or to a lesser extent, Amador to a lesser extent, Vlad for the show to commit violence against, to kill, to sacrifice, you know, for the sake of the plot and the emotional dynamics and the moving things forwardness of it all. I have a character that I would like them to commit violence against. Let's save that for Daniel Vossier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, one, one thing about Gregory, and maybe this is actually a way to transition to the other main character of this episode in a certain way, is that one of the things that, Claudia does, presumably on her own accord and without kind of getting advance approval or advance warning from Philip and Elizabeth, is plant evidence from Chris's death in Gregory's apartment as a, there is definitely no way you could successfully get to California and stay, you know, underground sort of thing. And that is the, one of the multiple pivot points in this episode Between Gregory and Stan, who's like really going through one hell of a journey in this episode and is just destroying everything in his path in a certain way. Everything in his path. One last note on the, the Claudia planting evidence did not see that coming. And I was like, Oh, Good. Like, right. Like I think I was worried that they had all gotten sloppy. Right. Which is like, generally my anxiety about them getting found out is like linked to this sloppiness. So when Claudia is like, we've already planted this evidence on you. You've been working for us, but like, we don't trust you. Um, Which is a, it's like, you know, sinister, but it's also necessary. Right. And we've seen that she's willing to torture Philip and Elizabeth who are like her star, you know, agents here so but i was like first of all i was surprised and then i was like okay good like we're in we're in capable hands here right it's a marker of the show's understanding of its structure exactly and how it must structurally operate vis-a-vis the viewer and vis-a-vis its characters and the way that our we as viewers will relate to the characters and an unwillingness to let the show off the hook exactly right? or to let claudia off the hook or let the kgb off the hook or let whomever off the hook because they assume we as viewers and rightfully assume we will connect with and feel very sad as a result of 
um, of Gregory's death in this episode. Yeah, no, I think that that's spot on. Uh, I just wanted to make sure to like, I generally am pretty down on Claudia. So I wanted to, (laughs) to give a little plug for her. I think like the pivot to Stan makes a lot of sense for us right now. Um, um, before we do that, though, we should also just say, I mean, you said this earlier, but, like, Derek Luke, just an incredible job. With, amazing. With, uh, playing Gregory throughout this season. Amazing. And maybe at the end of the season, we can, like, do some superlatives or, like, favorite favorite characters yes. that got killed Great. off. <laughs> right. <laughs> Great. Some morbid superlatives. Always here for that. Amazing. Um, I mean, there's lots of places to start with Stan. Danielle, do you have a particular... There are, like, three... No, there are four, like, major moments of Stan, at least in this episode, where should we begin with Stan? I think the place to begin with Stan is actually like towards the end, which is Stan's interaction with Nina, because I think this is actually the most pressing Mm. and uh, like, I want to say dangerous. Yeah. Stan. Right. So Stan has this interaction with Nina and Nina is like distraught because Vlad is her friend and, and she's like, who killed him? Like she's, she's grilling Stan and Stan is just like stone faced. Nina, we're going to figure it out. Like, we don't know. We're going to figure it out and just lying to her. And I think for me, I was saying this to you before we started recording, but there is something about Stan's seamless shift from like wanting to be Nina's white knight and save her and like get her out of this country to now just like lying because it serves his purpose and his mission. Like there's something sinister about that to me. There is. And I think one of the ways that we know that as viewers of this episode is actually how Stan responds to Nina's challenges to him. Right. So Nina is like, will you, would you actually let me know how or why Vlad died? And Stan says, well, we're not monsters. And then Nina says, well, you only tell me what I want to hear. And whereas before there's a way in which Stan is just kind of repressing the fact that Gad's never going to let him exfiltrate Nina or kind of repressing like, the way that he is using Nina not only for his job, but also because he has this cruel attraction to her and so on and so forth. Whereas here it is that much more sinister. We're not monsters, even as I am the one that killed Vlad in literally the fucking place we are standing talking right now. That was the wild. That was the part that I was just like, you are literally standing in the same spot, like where you took a gun to this man's head sort of, not out of nowhere, but like in a surprising turn of events. So I think the heel turn we saw from Stan last episode with shooting Vlad and like, you know, with sort of like joining in on all this stuff. And I think we see a little bit of it too, right? With Stan's interaction with the sketchy uh, salvage yard dude, where he's just like, okay, like, None of you believe, like, you don't believe that I'll beat the shit out of you to get what I want. Like, I look like this. It was a little bit of, like, I look like this meek, like, agent, like, nerdy guy. Like, I will fuck you up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think that that is, like, the interaction with Nina just makes the, like, cold-bloodedness of it all. Yeah, that's the right word. Like, come to the surface in a a really prominent way. 
Yes, exactly. And and draws out that particular dimension of Philip by contrast as well, and that the lengths to which both of them are willing to forego their usual mode of engaging with the spycraft counterintelligence game when they feel threatened or challenged or something has gone wrong, something they didn't anticipate, or more to the point, somebody they thought they had a role of protecting was hurt or killed in the case of Amador, right? That like we've seen Philip kind of go wild when Elizabeth was beaten up by the security guy Mm -hmm. that she was trying to, that she's tried to seduce earlier in the season and kind of Philip wilding out a couple of other times. And here Stan is doing it because Chris was killed in the previous episode. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. I'm, I'm not here for scary Stan. We get scary Stan. We also got drunk, extremely emotional Stan. Oh, yeah. Um, when he gets to Philip's sad motel, watch <laughs> Elizabeth, Philip, and Stan all uh, comment on how sad yeah, this motel situation is. <laughs> Um, and then, and then the Stan makes a spy joke, says this place is a shithole, then goes into like drunk monologuing time about how everything is temporary. Everywhere is the same place. Everywhere is the same shitty motel. It's like Stan feels this extremely depressed stasis or frozenness that is at the same time. Um, fleeting and temporary. Like Stan has zero emotional bearings or tools through which to work through the emotions that he is feeling or experiencing. And that all comes out in his drunk monologue to Philip. The drunk monologue, it just like Stan's drunkenness was unsettling. I think in the same way Mm -hmm. that his, um, his heel turn is unsettling and the cold bloodedness is unsettling. The drunkenness to me is also unsettling. And I would say that it's like a, to me, it's the mark of someone who is engaging in these cold blooded activities, but actually like it needs to process them and doesn't know how to process them. Stan has no processing. That is very, very clear as is true. Even when he tries to like have a real conversation with Sandy kind of later on in the episode, but like even there, also out of nowhere, also out of nowhere, but that also has been kind of fucked in advance by the fact that, you know, he tells Philip, well, Chris wasn't married. It was better that way. He had no secrets. You know, you can't be married and not have secrets. And obviously saying that to, to Philip is just such a mind bender for the audience and must be for Philip as well, who handles this whole situation extremely well from a like spying perspective, uh, I must say. And Stan's just, you know, he is... In case we as the audience did not, like, really get it when last episode Chris is talking about being unencumbered, Stan wants to make sure that we really hit that nail on the head. Nail hit. Nail hit. Do we want to talk a little bit more about Stan's interaction with Sandy? Yeah, I think so. And there's... 
I mean, Sandy offers Stan the thing that Philip wants to offer Elizabeth of, let us just end this and get out of here and defect, right? For Sandy, it's to some other life that's detached from the FBI. For Philip to Elizabeth, it's from the KGB, although Philip hasn't really brought up defecting since the beginning of the season. Yeah. um, Probably for the better. But there's just this, there's this question of escape that Sandy wants to offer to Stan, which, you know, presumably one uh, can read as Sandy wanting to just escape from Stan because there is no Stan who is not an FBI agent because that is so integral to his sense of self. Yeah, but I wonder, like, how much, in the same way that, like, Stan is is lying to himself about his ability to to get Nina out of this? Like, is Sandy also lying to herself about whether or not there is Stan beyond the FBI? I think the question of let's yeah. run away together is like, yeah, I believe that there's something that, that you're a you beyond this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that Stan believes that he's like a person like his subjectivity is like constituted through. Yeah, he yeah. could never name that. To your point, the like, yeah. he lacks processing <laughs> tools. He would not be able to voice that. Like he would need many years of therapy to be able to voice that. Um, therapy was not, you know, like new uh, number one on the call sheet for like white dudes in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So it's funny you say that for reasons that will become clear in season two or season three. I forget. Um, Amazing. We're just, it's, this is just like the Sopranos in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about the way that and this is a point you made in discussing the episode, Danielle, the way that Sandy and Gregory are kind of juxtaposed uh, in relation to one another. Yeah, I think that, like, there is this, like, both Sandy and Gregory are these outsiders, right? They're, they're like, outsiders to Sandy's an outsider to her own marriage. Like, she's an outsider to the, all the, the doings in the, in the FBI. Gregory is also this sort of, like, outside force who comes in to, to help. And I think, like, the fact that both Sandy and Gregory are, like, let's get out of here. Sandy, obviously, to Stan. Gregory to Elizabeth. Like, let's mm-hmm. just run away together. It's this... There's there's something really interesting about the fact that it's these outsiders, like, trying to pull to, to come back to, you know, Stan trying to get Nina out of, out of things, right? Like, you can't get out of something when you're fully in it. You need someone to exfiltrate you from outside. Stan will never be able to get Nina out of any of this because he's so embedded in and constituted by the entire mess, right? But yet Sandy and Gregory sort of like are on the outside. Sandy, I think, wants to poke in because she wants there to be yep. some interaction with Stan. Yep. Gregory's like, he's involved, but he's not in it as evidenced by the fact that he's like, honestly, I would rather just die. Like, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so for Gregory, right, he says something to the effect of, you know, this is my reward. You letting me go out and kind of and shoot some cops and then and die as a result, right? This is my, re- my reward because I lived here. I fought here, right? And Sandy has expressed up to this point, you know, a kind of transitoriness in her relationship to place, right? Because she never really was at home 
in St. Louis with Matthew because there was no Stan, right? She has, uh, mm-hmm. she has Elizabeth, but kind of doesn't. Otherwise mm-hmm. we have, which of course, like, isn't to ever the extent real. that one could right. have a spy. <laughs> right. Um, so kind of what, what Sandy has that connection to is, is way more unclear yeah. than it was for, than it was for Gregory. Yeah. And I think it's just worth noting like the parallel. I think this is an episode where we get a lot of parallels. We sure do. Um, should we also then maybe kind of as a way to wrap up the main part of the discussion, think about how this episode fits into the arc of the season as a whole. And, and I say, you know, let's maybe make that transition here because of the way that I understand you to have understood what's going on <laughs> in that final montage. There's a lot of like, a lot of layers there, but yeah, I think like, so in the final montage, we get the, um, scenes of Vlad's like body and coffin sort of, leaving the embassy and, and we also get insane shootout with Gregory and, and the cops. And he really gets a lot of shots off. Mm -hmm. That man's got a lot of ammo in his pockets. I was, I was like worried for him. And then I was like, no, he's, he's got it. And then is, is just like taken down in really spectacular fashion. Yeah. And I think that like really melodramatic fashion, I yes. actually want to say like the way that he acts in the camera frames when he is finally like shot and killed yeah. by the cops, right? So he takes one shot, there's a pause, then he takes several shots, camera slows down, he falls down, and then like it slows down further for his leg to just kind of hang there in yeah. the air. And we only see part of it because he is behind a car and we're shooting from the other side of the car. So it's like the melodrama of that. Yeah, which I think is also matched by the melodrama of like, let's escort Vlad's Precisely. casket. You know, like, we don't, we haven't spent a ton of time with Vlad. We haven't spent a ton of time with Gregory. And yet, both of these characters who could have ostensibly been, like, throwaway or disposable have sort of an intense amount of emotional weight, both for characters within the show, right? For Elizabeth, for Philip, sort of by way of Elizabeth, I think even a little bit for Claudia in terms of like yeah. thinking about like the decisions that are made around Gregory are not decisions taken lightly. Exactly. And I think Vlad similarly, right? We get this sort of, we've, we've seen him a couple of times, but when Nina is coming to stand, she's like heartbroken about this. Mm-hmm. And so I think like we get within the show, these side characters having like, developed intense emotional connections and allowing us to see these sides of the, the, the main characters. But I think that that also functions on like a more meta level for those of us watching the show, right? Where we are experiencing like the loss of Gregory. I was sad. I was oh, like, yeah. this Me is, too. yeah. Too. I mean, my third time through watching the show, like I, I knew exactly what was coming. It was really, really sad when it happens nonetheless. Yeah, and I guess I'll I'll say on that note that this was the first time where the previously on fired up at the beginning of the episode and like it's all these shots of Gregory and I was like, yeah. "Oh no." Yeah. And I haven't had that experience yet. So, I think like in terms of how this episode fits into the arc of the season as a whole, I think it's it's like on the one hand there's this clearing the deck that's happening, right? Like there were, we lose the murkiness of 
of Gregory and Elizabeth, we also like lose the th- one of the I think pressing threats against Mina because like I think had Vlad stayed around, like he's a little bit onto her, right? Like yeah, he sees her hanging by the file cabinet a little too much. Mm-hmm. Which was also called attention to in the previously on. Exactly. And then I was like, oh no, like, did he say something? I'm, I'm always afraid of somebody being made here. <laughs> but yeah, I think like, so this episode is clearing the deck in a way and, and like shining a light on like the key relationships and the key characters and the key dynamics between them, which like all of these episodes are doing anyway, but like without Gregory, without Vlad, we get a little bit, that's heightened a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that in a worse show, Gregory in particular, um, and to a lesser extent Vlad, and to a lesser extent Chris, although it took a while to get there with Chris, there wouldn't have been the emotional investment or the or the opening of the audience to form an emotional investment with these characters. They just would have been more one note. They would have all yeah, been absolutely. the worst version of Chris Amador. But instead, Chris gets com- you know com- more complexity in the episode in which he dies, um, and Vlad gets some additional complexity because of Nina here. And Gregory obviously has had this kind of rich depth of character throughout the season. And in the worst show, we would have gotten zero or none of that, or close to none of that. Yeah, I think that I I agree with that, and I think like this episode. And maybe this is a good way to transition into some of the segments, but this episode for me made me excited about the remaining three in the season. Batshit final three episodes. <laughs> Amazing. Facing, Amazing. Batshit uh, feels like exactly the way to uh, transition into bard nostalgia for can, the end of can, can I thwart your attempted segue and no. make, a point, make a final point about <laughs> yeah. the Batshit? Of course, of course. <laughs> and there's there's this way in which this episode, obviously, I mean, Greg, Gregory dies, right? Stan has this interrogation of Curtis. There's this scene between Stan and Philip. There's a lot of weight and a lot of plot that happens in this mm-hmm. episode but it feels less breaknecky it feels mm-hmm. less um you know mission of the week as i think you called it spycraft of the week as some of the other yeah. episodes the season have and nonetheless it's like part of these last five episodes or so of the season are just so intensely plot full yeah that okay. the emotional complexity to your point of gregory's death or of kind of the way these multiple deaths are interacting with one another i think is a mark of the show growing out of some of the problems i had with the middle episodes sure. of season one sure and i think also like the the growing out of and like the like deeper connections and the more obvious interconnections like i think you're right like it's the mark of a more mature show and a show that's like getting ready to keep going as opposed to one that's like here's some interesting stuff on your screen all right here's some interesting stuff on your podcast uh barred yes. for the unremembered 80s um i think we have a couple fashion updates uh first of all there's more turtlenecks this time nina has a turtleneck lots of turtlenecks she wears a turtleneck better than uh certainly better than clark uh she has a more fashionable turtleneck. okay um, that's literally like <laughs> she wears a turtleneck better than a rock <laughs> okay <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but more importantly, I've forgotten this, but like 
one of the best episodes, one of the best um, outfits of the entire run is in this episode. Um, Elizabeth's like triangular, like black and gray dress with the boots is an incredible fit. In the she's wearing in the in the morning with the kids. Yes, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. I also was like, this is an amazing outfit. This is not an eighties outfit. Probably correct. <laughs> in the eighties, women were wearing sweatsuits. Like <laughs> that's what was happening here. Um, however, Stan still needs a tailor. That's that's my other fashion update. Oh my god. Stan is the Roger Smith of the <laughs> of the Americans. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there are any other fashion updates um from me. The, Sandy's bathrobe, I was like, come on. Like, get out of here. But the I, I do think the turtlenecks took this one. All right, fair enough. What what else do we have in Oh man. I don't know nostalgia here but let's no they honestly when i was taking notes on this episode i was like when stan rolls in rolls up to the motel and is wasted i was like Mm -hmm. drunk driving is borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered (laughs) 80s like that like i don't know just like seeing a lot of commercials on tv like don't drink and drive and like on long island there are all these like signs that are like don't drink and drive on the highway that we would always see driving to my grandparents house Mm -hmm. and it's like i just feel like the 80s was a lot about drunk driving there's no uber in the 80s (laughs) very true um yeah and this is not the first time stan has engaged in some moderate to heavy drunk driving even in just this first season so i don't love it not great not Not great great. not a great look Um, yeah uh also not a great look. The show, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. Um, it's like unnostalgia for the remembered yeah, 80s. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Um, the casual racism that the show gives to the salvage yard guy. Yeah. That, well, that both is a calling attention to the, we know this is bad. And also we're kind of reveling in it a little bit. Yeah. Um, made me kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think also, like, there is part of that that, that to me, is made worse by the fact that Stan was embedded with white supremacists or, like, uh, a motorcycle gang that was white supremacists, whatever. Distinction without a difference. Yeah, exactly. That's the term we're looking for. And, and like, I don't know, there's something about that like makes it all worse but yeah like though they were always wearing like hats and like necklaces you know how they do and i was just like no which stan on some level rejects but also does so and this is also a like the fbi is no hero yeah Um, yeah, yeah. there's plenty of that in this episode (laughs) don't worry we'll get to more of it um you know but like of course the major guy in the f major like tall blonde white dude in the fbi is both understanding that he should not engage in these like casual offhand forms of racism and like, we'll play it up when necessary or joke about it when he finds it advantageous to him to do so. Yeah. Which I think like does sum up Stan's character quite well. Do you want to give us the minor character of the week? 
Sure. So the minor character of the week is the character of Curtis, who is the member of Gregory's team that gets picked up by the mm. FBI. Yeah. Um, in this episode, he was one of the, I believe, two people who went to drop the car off at the salvage yard. Uh, he is played by Curtis Lyons. Um, so he's picked up by the FBI and then has this really wonderful interrogation scene yeah. with Stan oh. that is actually the most honest Stan is um, kind of throughout the entire episode. And Curtis is, has zero tolerance for Stan's bullshit. And Curtis Lyons as the actor gives some incredible facial expression reactions to Stan's bullshit in this episode. There's some great face acting, but I think also like part of why, so this was also my pick for minor character of the week. And I think part of why this character is like so good and important is like, he is the perfect counter and or like the perfect foil to Stan and amplifies precisely what we were talking about earlier, which is that like Stan does not exist as, as a human without the FBI. Mm, and it's mm-hmm. like in this interaction that like you get the purest form of that. Yeah. And Curtis understands that on some level. It, Curtis understands it and is like not going to play his game. Right. Yeah, but that does bring us to Daniel Dossier. So I would like to open Please. a file in Daniel Dossier about Curtis because a question that I have that I don't feel like the episode answers and maybe we'll get an answer later is like, does Curtis give up some kind of link to the Russians, right? We don't see him do it. And like, I at the end of the episode, Gregory's killed by like street cops, right? Not yeah. Not by the FBI. Yeah. But I couldn't help sort of, like, be a bit anxious about whether Curtis gave up some kind of link. I, as usual, uh, cannot offer any confirmation nor denial of this theory. Um, You mentioned a little bit ago, Danielle, that you had some possible violence theorized against a character in this show. Do you want to lay out this conspiracy that you have imagined in your mind? Listen, I'm just, like, waiting for Gad to get shot. Like, I'm just like, let's go after this guy. He sucks. He is a jerk. He's, like, hyper-masculine. And he's just, like, somebody who is the worst. And so I'm like, you know what? If there was some sort of like KGB conspiracy to go after this dude, I would not be sad about it. Is this a, is this a prediction or a, or a wish or a both and situation? Obviously both and we only both and here. We only (laughs) both and here in Daniel Dossier. Very, very true. (laughs) Um, Now this possible guy, well, before we close the dossier, any other entries this week? No, I don't think any other entries. We didn't get a ton with the kids, although Paige did the Paige um, Elizabeth showdown. against Elizabeth, yeah. (laughs) I was like, I have had that conversation with my mom, like, (laughs) as a 13-year-old. So I – and I also was like, when Elizabeth was like, "Ah, you were allowed to, like, choose what you wanted to, like, wear and this and this and that. And I was like – Be on the phone and watch TV and – Yeah, I'm like, well, the next sentence is, you didn't have to grow up in a poor farm town, like, in Russia. (laughs) Right, in the Soviet (laughs) Union. So I was like, so I'm not sure – this doesn't necessarily prove anything one way or the other, but Elizabeth's playing a little fast and loose with, like, her upbringing. Like, what does she think Paige thinks about her as a child? Right. What have – 
Philip and Elizabeth told the kids about their upbringing. Yeah. Where are they from? Where are the grandparents? Like... All legitimate questions. So I think that those go in the dossier for like, uh, children watch, uh, 2022. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, from the dossier to glass, uh, a great our transition. Boy, our boy Derrida. Um, <laughs> we're going to transition from, uh, from your point about Gad to the extreme macho bullshit Ugh. that Gad and the rest of the FBI like are on in response to Chris's death, right? We won't settle until we zip them into a body bag and a great reaction shot from Stan. Uh, Gad saying, no one is accusing you of doing anything wrong, Stan, even though you murdered somebody in cold blood for no reason. Even though you literally had direct orders to not do the thing you did. (laughs) Even though you literally had direct orders to not even capture this guy in the first place. Um, Because, because, Danielle, don't worry, it's a war now. And we fight like soldiers. Now? Twice. This is, these are all things that Gad says to Stan. And it's not the first time in the preceding couple of episodes, even, that we get this macho bullshit from the feds. So it's just, it's, it comes to a fore in this particular episode. uh, And might set up more about what's to come in the next episodes of the season Uh, i don't love the macho bullshit i think it 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 makes sense for like where we're at in the show where we're at in in the in the timeline like all of that however it's like it's just so gross and it's like something i was thinking about in relation to this while i was watching is like if the audience wasn't already like suspicious of the police or the feds like this show would really like tip them over the edge i would hope so (laughs) i would hope so um it's also again it's another iteration of a worse show would have not complicated the fbi so much yeah and also would not have been able to like stand with or like move with that complication yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what what else do we have for Glass this week, Daniel? We also have. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing at our notes. <laughs> because, uh, I want. Are we going to my ridiculous? Yeah, theory? that's exactly. <laughs> this is John's dossier. <laughs> this is uh, like queer corner with John. <laughs> Uh, so in my dossier this week is the fact that Stan shows up at the sad motel. Philip is just out of a shower, has like a too small hotel, bad motel towel wrapped around his waist and too opens small. the door um, to Stan and like is not in a major rush to change and like let's Stan in and they have like a brief, brief convo before he's like, let me put some clothes on. <laughs> And so for the first time of my three viewings of the Americans, (laughs) I had the, wait a second, are we experiencing some sexual tension between Philip and Stan that neither of them would ever act on nor admit to? And has the racquetball been a sublimation of homoerotic desire? Danielle, your thoughts? I mean, <laughs> when you told me this before we started recording, I was like, John, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just want to say, this is not how I read this scene, but we are pro, like, multiple overlapping and even potentially contradictory readings. Like, do I think there is some, like, homoerotic tension between Stan and and Philip writ large? Yeah. Is the racquetball part of that? Yeah, absolutely. Those shorts are so short. (laughs) But, like, is this scene about, like, queer desire... I don't think so, but like, I want to support you reading it like this. However <laughs> ridiculous this ship is, <laughs> look, it's it's not it's not actually a ship. Like, this would be a I think a worse show if <laughs> Philip and Stan had sex. I think, yeah, it would be a worse show if they had sex. So I'm not I'm not actively shipping this. I just want to point out that uh, there's some problem. I don't know. I guess like the termer I'm looking for. I don't want to implicate you in this <laughs> absurd fine. reading of the scene. <laughs> I um, love it. Is, I love is it. The, is, it's the homosocial relationship. Of, yeah. Of Phil and Stan, which just becomes hyper visibilized uh, by Philip looking good in his too small towel. To, I wanted that towel to be smaller. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> listen, I'm not hating this scene. I just don't think that, listen, if Stan is not even like ready to be aware that he is lying to himself about Nina, believe me, he's not anywhere near ready to be aware <laughs> like his feelings about Philip if we're to follow this to the end. Correct. We don't have any worry Extremely about correct. Philip and Stan fucking on this show because Stan would have to like engage in some kind of internal monologue about the world. And I just don't see that happening. Yeah. I mean, Stan can't realize that his uh, best friend BFF is a spy for the KGB, uh, or at least not after the first episode of the season, definitely can't realize any underlying uh, sexual compatibility with him that may or may not exist. Okay. On to the next <laughs> item. Thank you for, for indulging me. Honestly, my pleasure. Um, This is, according to the fan wiki for the Americans, one of the only episodes with no Philip disguises. Yeah, we didn't get any disguises, right? Like, I don't think so. We don't get an Elizabeth disguise either. Yeah. Which, I mean, speaks all the way back to the beginning of our episode to the emotional clarity and starkness of the characters in this particular episode. Yeah, and I think, like, one place where, at least for me, that I saw some of that starkness come out is there's that diagonal mirror shot of Elizabeth right after Gregory leaves the bar. It's, like, in the bar mirror. So we're, like, Mm -hmm. the camera's sort of diagonal to the mirror, which is diagonal to Elizabeth. It's a really fascinating shot. And I was thinking a little bit about, about that and just about, like, all of these things, all of these feelings for Elizabeth being laid bare when when so much of, like, her persona in this show is, like, being the one with no emotions, being frustrated about the relationship with Philip and, like, feeling like her emotions have gotten in the way, right? Like, she's yeah. the one that's always coming back to that. And yet this episode, her emotions get in the way, right? Like, and and there is sort of a recognition of, like, her humanity in that sense by both Claudia and Philip. Like, we know that this is going to be complicated for Elizabeth. So we're going to, we have these contingencies. And I think, like, there's something about that sort of diagonal mirror shot also, like, letting 
perhaps letting the viewer know that like we're going to get a different version of Elizabeth in this episode than we've gotten. Precisely the right point. Additionally, because it's a remix of the open one of the opening shots of the entire show the americans of elizabeth in the blonde wig right seducing the department of justice guy and he like goes to the bathroom or whatever and we get the more head-on less diagonal mirror shot of her at a different bar a darker bar this is a bar during the still daylight outside and the two different Elizabeths and the different emotional states and sense of control or agency over the situation. Yeah. Extremely different poles. Totally different. I hadn't been thinking about that sort of, that initial shot, but I think that point is really, it's, it's helpful not only in sort of clarifying the weightiness of this shot, but also the sort of like, how far we've come from that moment where there isn't really like where we don't know anything about Elizabeth, but also like there is like so much turmoil that like Elizabeth hasn't undergone yet that like we get a little bit in the sort of like a skew shot Mm -hmm. here. Perfect. There's not only the twin shot from the opening of the Americans, there's also a twin shot from towards the end of this episode Mm -hmm. gregory has just left the apartment to go out and uh, face his death and there's this shot of elizabeth still clearly emotionally distraught standing next to the bed in the safe house they were using it's mostly dark but there's just some light streaming through the windows or through the curtains on the window and the way that she is lit and like her posture and the way that she is standing in relation to the bed and the windows where there is a similarly emotionally bared Elizabeth. But by the end of the episode, we have gone from the diagonal mirror shot to this like nearly head on. It's just a tiny bit at an angle, if I remember correctly. Yeah. um, View of her in the safe house, which is a different kind of space, right? We're in some ways also getting her from Philip's POV. Yeah. Right. So the camera is about where Philip is standing at that point. So it's just, it's another like a camera shot that I was interested in. And I think it speaks to the camera shot you found meaningful. Yeah. And I think like you have pointed us to different camera shots over the, over the course of this season. And so I've started to like be more interested in that. So I appreciate that. And I also think that like the move from the camera being on a diagonal, from the angle being on a diagonal to almost being straight on, I think perhaps there's a way to read that going back to sort of the the points we started out with about like, yeah. this is the, the deck has been cleared. It's just the two of them. They're the yes. only ones who are really in this. Yes. And even, even like, such a meaningful relationship as like Elizabeth's with Gregory, like might have to be sacrificed. So it's like, it's just us. Did you say sacrifice Danielle Hanley? I did say sacrifice John McMahon. It's almost like Danielle was setting us up to turn to our final segment for the day where we descend into the cave and I would like to clear the floor for expert of Greek tragedy, Danielle Hanley to take us down into the cave. Uh, I've been waiting to to bring some Euripides into the cave with us 
we've all always already. The listeners, too, they didn't know it. They, too, I have always already been wanting to go into the cave with Euripides. So on the one hand, like, been waiting the whole season to to hang in the cave with Euripides. On the other hand, like, there is something so tragic about this episode, right, that it just seems natural to to move to Greek tragedy. I think Euripides is a perfect interlocutor for us in the cave, in part because this episode is so tragic, right? The death of Gregory, the loss of that relationship, the sort of, like, uh, starkness of everything, Stan's heel turn, like, all of these really intense emotional beats, to me, sort of, like, move us into the realm of tragedy, into this realm of, like, like intense emotional circulation and also frenzy. And so I was trying to think about if there was a particular tragedy that Gregory's sacrifice, um, that we could read Gregory's sacrifice at the end through. And while this isn't perfect, I do think that there is, there, there's some affinity here. So the, the tragedy, I think, most worth our time in this episode and don't worry listeners there will be plenty of other tragedy going forward it's in danielle's contract (laughs) yeah it's the whole it's really the whole thing (laughs) but the tragedy that i think is like most helpful for us here is euripides's medea which is famous because medea the titular character kills her children sort of in the penultimate scene in this play and one of the one of the there she kills her children her husband decides to marry someone new and that is what precipitates the killing of the children she also kills the husband's new bride and the new bride's and the like the new bride's father um she also like maybe makes a pact with an Athenian king. There's a lot, a lot of things going on, much like an episode of the Americans where there's just a lot of moving pieces. But the sort of famous thing in this tragedy is Medea murders her own sons. Um, it is a scene that I have written extensively about. And this isn't actually my reading of it, but a, a common reading of Medea's willingness to murder her sons is that this is a sacrifice that she needs to make in order to for her to move forward right that and and part of that is like the life that the sons will live you know if she doesn't kill them will be marred by her father's like betrayal and and if the new wife has a child then like he won't love them as much and also maybe it's their fault that because they gave the the new bride a poison crown and a poison dress like who knows so there's this reading of the murder of her sons that it's like it's for their own good and like for and for the benefit of this like greater good this like liberation and i think that that's the link to gregory like that he's sort of saying now he's not like it's not that he's allowing himself to be sacrificed. He is making that sacrifice, right? Like that this is, this is the, the best possible choice he can make amongst a sea of pretty shitty choices. And it is the choice that like, that does the most work in enabling the kind of future that he's been trying to create the entire time. And so I think that that is the link to tragedy. This like, None of the none of the options are optimal. 
If there's one thing I've learned, there's many things I've learned about tragedy from you, Daniel. And one of them is that it has a unique, perhaps unique, you can correct me if I'm wrong, ability to think about the responses of people to conditions or structures of limited agency. And my understanding is that like that is one of the things that you see in Medea and the conspiring that she does with the chorus in Medea to commit these murders. And there's yeah. a way in which Gregory is facing multiple axes of limited agency here, right? Yeah. The fact that he is a black man in the United States of America, the fact that he works for the KGB, the fact that he knows that he probably could be killed or would be killed by the KGB if he tried to flee. And if not, he's being hunted by the FBI the whole time. Right. And so your kind of way that you, you know, spooled out this uh, reading of Medea that we could use to think about Gregory is, is I think particularly meaningful in that sense. Um, I do have a question about your Medea Euripides uh, analogy here. Go for it. Does the Americans have a chorus? Oh, does the Americans have a chorus? On the one hand, the chorus is like the gaggle of FBI agents, right? Ah, yes. But I think doing the kind of work that the chorus is doing, some assemblage of like Claudia, the kids, and like Stan and Sandy. Like, okay. My my question my but my follow up question was going to be is Paige the chorus of the Americans? I, so she is the Caragos, right? She's the choral leader. Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I think like that is probably I think we we sort of like we leave Euripides in the cave because we're going to come back to him for sure. Yeah. He's opened some new paths in and out of the cave. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I love so much about tragedy, which our dear listeners will hear about for the next 17 <laughs> years as we complete this journey. One of the things I love so much about tragedy, and this is connected to the course, is like tragedy itself is polyphonous, right? Like there are many voices, many sounds that are circulating within these texts. And like, it is possible to like draw upon Medea to understand a, a, like a slightly different angle or reading of Gregory. And it might, and it would be possible to, to draw on Medea to like think through other dynamics in like in this show as well. And like, there isn't only one reading of these things. So. Perfect. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's end on a both end. I think we, we love you and I can agree on that part. We love for sure. Um, so the next episode we'll be talking about is, is season one, episode 11, uh, titled covert war. Danielle, what do you think will be happening in an episode titled covert war? Well, you've also already told me that it gets batshit from here. So I'm like, one, people are going to die. There's, I feel like going to be explosions, but like, we're like the blame for the explosions is not going to be always clear. Great. Great. We'd love to see it. Um, thank you as always to producer Amy and, uh, we will look forward to joining you next time on not quite great books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at 
notgreatbookstv. You can email us at notgreatbookstv at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. Oh, that's supposed to be me. Sorry. Hold on, I gotta take a note to cut this. <laughs> I'm off to a great start. <laughs>